Welcome to AMDA On The Go, your gateway to expert discussions, journal article reviews, and innovations in post-acute and long-term care. AMDA On The Go is a presentation of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now, here's our host for AMDA on the go, Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Diane Sanders-Cepeda. I am joined today by Dr. Abel Green, and we are going to talk about microtransitions. Dr. Green, can you please introduce yourself to the AMDA family? Yes, and thank you so much for having me, Dr. Sanders Cepeda. This is my first podcast, and I'm really excited about it. I'm a geriatrician and hospice doctor down here in Central Texas. I'm the division director for geriatric medicine at Baylor Scott and White, and I am the medical director for our hospice. In addition to that, I serve as medical director of one of our local community skilled nursing facilities. So the care of elders is what I do and what I'm passionate about. Well, that is, that's awesome. I, I think when I first heard your name, um, the conversation was around microtransitions. And I was like, well, what is a microtransition? So if you could, you know, as, as I wanna dive into this topic deeply, if you could tell everyone, what you define microtransitions to be? Thank you for that question because microtransitions is a word that I created to help conceptualize some of the things that we were seeing during the early phases of the pandemic. And it's not something that I have seen described in the literature before, but our experience here was that patients were having significant impacts to their care plan just because they wanted to go to clinic to get an injection for their knee or shoulder, or just because they wanted to go to radiology for their annual DEXA scan, et cetera. What we were seeing is patients were coming back from those appointments and being placed on isolation for two weeks, because at that point in the pandemic, we had nothing other than isolation to help uh, slow down the spread of COVID-19. And so we started talking in the Transitions of Care Subcommittee for AMDA about this phenomena and how people were making significant decisions about their healthcare based on whether or not they wanted to risk going out of the facility for these smaller care transitions that we don't often think of when we talk about transitional care. And that's where the term microtransitions was born. It's really interesting because when I looked it up, I was, um, after first being introduced to the term a few months ago, I was like, well, I've heard of microtransitions when we're talking about 
um, you know, certain other conditions, like a lot of the, the pediatric world where you're thinking about how to, uh, a child who may have um, exceptional needs, how they're moving across the, their own continuum, or when we are talking about patients who have dementia and they may be going from home to like uh, a pace or, or um, back um, to, a, to the adult daycare center. And I think it's just really interesting bringing this concept to post-acute long-term care. How does this compare we, we're, what, what you saw with the pandemic and the pandemic that we're still in, but how do you, you compare this with maybe a transition from acute care to the facility or a transition to, um, you know, back to home or to the ALF? Where do we, how do we think of this in, in that larger scale? Right. So the, the beginning of the concept was around this issue of patients having significant decisions to make just because they wanted to go to an appointment. And as we continue to discuss this phenomena in the Transitions of Care Subcommittee, we realize that people experience microtransitions all the time. And I would, I would compare it to those major transitions um, in the following ways. When you think about someone going from the hospital to the skilled nursing facility as a macro transition, if you will, by comparison, usually there has been a significant clinical change. They've spent a significant number of days in one setting with a plan to go to a different setting and spend a significant number of days. There have often been medication changes, studies that have been completed, maybe studies that are still pending results. There's a handoff of care from one team to another, from one setting to another. And because it's easily recognizable, we've got a large body of literature around how to manage that. Now contrast that, if you will, the person who lives in the nursing home or is in the nursing home for a post-acute stay for say 21 days or so, and they simply want to go out to an appointment and come right back. Whether it's a medical appointment or a dental appointment or an appointment with their financial advisor, there is actually a handoff of care and I guess a custodial handoff, if you will, in that setting, even though they're only out for a couple of hours and they're going to come back, significant things can occur during those transitions. And because they are not generally recognized as a macro transition, then we don't have a lot of literature or protocols to tell us how to manage that, how to even recognize it as significant so that we can pay attention to the way we communicate across those care settings. So for example, if a patient leaves with a family member to go have lunch, for example, <laughs> um, what kind of guidance do we give them about how to manage their loved one, what they choose from the menu? Maybe they're a diabetic and we need to have some, some precautions around what they eat, or maybe they're on a mechanical soft diet. Are we actually giving the family a prescribed um, set of guidelines for that transition. 
Probably not, right? We think, well, that's her mom. She knows what she needs and she'll bring her back in, in one piece. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes well, it, it yeah, it, it, it reminds me of those occasions where you would get a call at, um, you know, like 9 p.m., about a blood sugar and you're like, what happened? What, what was going on? You know, that's very atypical. And they're like, the blood sugar is high and you're getting all this information. And then in that conversation, someone said, well, you know, they went to lunch with their, their, um, their, their daughter, or they just returned from um, being out all day. And I'm like, well, can we start with that the next time we have this kind of conversation? Because I need to know what has happened. And to, to respond. And I think, I think we don't think about it enough. Um, and some people may say, well, we don't want to interfere with the, them having that event, that quality of life um, component, if they want to go out and socialize. But I've seen people go out and come back to a facility and they are um, either intoxicated you know, we used to call it like you had a very fun spa day. <laughs> you know, I need to know what happens when you're when you're moving back and forth. So let me ask this: um, in in thinking of that, and let's first go pre-pandemic. You know, I don't think we ever considered how many transitions a person is having in a in a given day. So let's think: what what is that experience like? I um in in that typical pre-pandemic so that we could learn and see how everything was impacted um, when the pandemic came, what would that typical, those typical micro transitions look like and that experience be? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And to your earlier point, it's all about communication, not about judgment. I just need to know what happened so I know what to do next, right? So if you yeah. want to go out and have a fun spa day, that's wonderful but I need to understand what happened so I know what to do with the information. But pre-pandemic, I think those transitions could be a clinic appointment to see a subspecialist, maybe a cardiologist. It could be a radiology appointment for a follow-up CT scan because there's an incidentaloma that was seen last year and we wanna make sure it's not changing. It could even be a hair appointment or an appointment to go um, have a, a cleaning at the dentist, right? So I think these are sort of the mundane everyday things that people experienced pre-pandemic and it was just part of life, just part of uh, the, the, the care of the patient with the family's involvement and we didn't necessarily think about them specifically as transitions. In terms of how people experienced them, if the micro transition involved another clinic, you may get information back and you may not get information back. And you know how that goes, right? Somebody comes back yeah. from the clinic and, you know, oh, they changed to meds, but you're not quite sure what or why. Or maybe they go out to clinic and they don't come back. Well, my favorite thing is when they came back from seeing a specialist and there was a form that they would carry with them and it just had a nice little scribble on it. And no one knew um, back in the day where people would go and accompany the resident, <laughs> no one would, could tell me what happened at the visit. And now I'm chasing down information from that physician's office um, to, to understand, okay, what were you trying to do? Because that's just a piece of paper with a scribble on it that said the patient was seen or something. If even you can read the scribble. Right. Understanding that there is a provider, there's a colleague on the other side of that handoff who needs to pick up the baton without dropping it 
and finish the race. And so I don't think we um, have always been mindful of that. And, you know, sometimes you mentioned having people accompanied to their appointments. Sometimes it's a family member. So empowering that person to say, if Dr. So-and-so wants to make a change, please make sure you write it down and you understand it so that when you come back, you can share that information with us because we may or may not get that information in a timely manner. I also think that there are times when we perhaps could have done a better job in preparing families and patients to go see the cardiologist, for example, if they're going out because they have heart failure and they, they're going to the cardiology clinic, it would probably be helpful for that cardiologist to know that the patient has been refusing their evening Lasix because they don't want to be up peeing all night. Exactly. That is a right? good point. Otherwise, they're going to go over there. They're going to be seven pounds up and the cardiologist is going to simply increase the dose of medication without realizing that the patient wasn't taking the medication as prescribed anyway, right? So I think the, the it's a two-way street. It works both ways. We want information, but we have to be willing and able and thoughtful enough to give the kind of information that's going to be important on the other side of that transition. So let's fast forward to back in the pandemic. And you mentioned earlier what we were seeing is when they left the building, um, a resident's coming back into isolation. What was that experience? Take me into that. I don't, I don't even, you know, it understanding that is seeing how traumatic that was. How did you experience that? And what, what, what advice and guidance were you given to your facilities? Mm -hmm. So during those early phases of the pandemic, we were all sort of making it up as we went along. We were all flying by the seat of our pants. So some of these things happened without us having an opportunity to give them any forethought. So this is what it would look like. I would come back to work on a Monday or something and find out that Mrs. So-and-so was in isolation for two weeks. And there'd be this note from an angry loved one wanting to talk to me about why their mom was in isolation for two weeks. And what I learned is that she went out to get a DEXA scan and came back. The nursing home staff said, well, she was gone for four hours. She went over to the hospital. That's where all the sick people are. How do we know she didn't get exposed to COVID while she was over there? Better safe than sorry. Let's put her in isolation. No, not for three days. How about 10 to 14? Because the incubation period is long and we want to make sure that she's not bringing COVID back into the building. That decision had been made and then communicated to the family. And so then I'm walking into this, having to sort of manage those public health sort of concerns of, of managing infection, infection control um, in a, a group setting, a communal setting, balancing that with patient rights and autonomy and the importance of community and being able to get out of the room. It was very challenging. So initially these issues just sort of bubbled up to the surface and we hadn't really had an opportunity to think about them. And as patients begin to be more aware that they might end up on isolation if they went out of the building, they started making decisions like, I'm not going to go see that specialist. No, I'm going to forego that test because I don't want to come back in here and be on isolation. And so you saw that fear 
really uh, taking a front and center role in terms of the decision-making process for patients and families? I mean, every time I hear it and, and uh, experiencing it in real time as well, you know, the heartbreak of hearing those, those cases and the situations and just trying to understand, you know, I don't, we, we know now how big a problem social isolation is, but that, that, a, that trauma that may have only lasted for a couple of days, a couple of weeks, I don't know, but the trauma of that moment mm -hmm. where I just went out for a simple examination and now I am not in either in my room or I'm in my room and no one else could come in, I'm isolated, um, I can't see my family. You, I cannot imagine the guilt and the um, maybe even shame that a resident would feel on top of now subjugating them to this social isolation. You know, that is that part. I think that's where that that where I feel when I hear that that you share that. I feel that intense that intensity. Mm -hmm. You know, what what was that like for that person in that moment? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a question that we've been asking you know, when thinking about cohorting and there's been a lot of discussion and I know for many of us that, that we're not doing that any longer because if a micro transition is moving from going to the outside of the building and coming back, it feels like uh, moving out of your room is a major transition, <laughs> you know? I don't know if that's micro, you know? Right. What do you think? Right, well, since it's under the same roof, we might consider it micro, but to that person, it's a huge deal. And saying, we can't imagine how it feels. I'll tell you what patients told me. They said they felt like they were being punished. And we use the term isolation. They often use the term quarantine, which carries with it that element of shame that you talked about. And so it was it was heartbreaking on all sides, heartbreaking for the families because they couldn't come in to see their loved ones, heartbreaking for the residents because they were isolated and whether people realize it or not, heartbreaking for the nursing facility staff because those were the things we, we were trying to do to keep everybody safe. We did not relish having to make those decisions about putting people on isolation or moving, changing rooms and all of that. Those were, those were not fun times and we did not take it lightly. So there is a significant emotional impact all the way around, including the healthcare worker who often gets vilified for carrying out some of those suggestions around cohorting and isolation. And I completely understand and haven't written some of those, you know, we're writing policy and you're now thinking back, ooh, this is now 2022 and the consequence of the policies that we were um, championing in 2020 are this, you know, and, and I, I, that's lessons learned from being in a pandemic no one could ever plan that. And I think it is something that we all have to understand and learn. I'm wondering though, in, in bringing this term to light and, and understanding micro transitions, what can we do about this? You know, um, if we're, whether we're practicing in the facility as an attending 
um, um, physician, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, or we're the medical director of a facility, or maybe we're even the specialist who's coming into the building. Um, what do we need? What is the, the, the key message that we need to take away as far as what do we do with the micro, uh, a micro transition? How do we address this? Right. Uh, that's a great question because I think we need to do more work around this, which is why it was so intriguing when it came up in our subcommittee talks. But to use a sports analogy, I think what we need to do is identify a quarterback and identify an MVP. So <laughs> the patient or the resident, right, is always at the center. Sometimes they are cognitively intact enough to be their own quarterback and to be their own MVP. But oftentimes they are not because they're dealing with complex medical issues and it may be hard to keep that straight across a micro transition. So as a physician in the post-acute setting, I see myself as the quarterback. It's my responsibility to call the play. It's my responsibility to recognize the potential pitfalls of my patient going out to the podiatrist or going to the you know spa to get a pedicure what what are the potential pitfalls right so that's my responsibility as the quarterback if you will and then i need to give some anticipatory guidance about that to the patient if they're cognitive cognitively intact or to the family members if they will be accompanying the patient or perhaps i need to do some pre-communication with that specialist I see that you are going to have a visit today with Mrs. Smith to follow up on a heart failure. Let me just tell you, she's been refusing her Lasix in the evening. So if we can make an adjustment and maybe put all of the, the Lasix dosing in the morning, we may be able to get better compliance. Let me know what you think. That's before the visit even occurs. And then the MVP, if, if the patient can't be their own MVP, letting the family member know, listen, you're going to go with your mom to this appointment. We really want you to take great notes. And if you have questions or concerns, write those down. When you come back, we need to debrief with you. We don't want you to just wheel her back to the nurse's station, sign her in, and then leave. Part of our process of bringing her back into the facility is debriefing with the MVP, with the person who accompanied her to figure out what exactly went on over there so that if we need to make more uh, efforts at communication or follow-up, we have a place to start and we can do that. So I think having more communication and thoughtfulness around how we manage the transition, the micro-transition in bookend fashion. What do we do before? What do we do after? I think that's a great place to start. Now, and, and I'm, that's, I'm gonna unpack that because I love all of that, you know. <laughs> especially as we're coming off of the playoff season in, in the Super Bowl. But I have, I have a question. When one thing that someone could say, well, bring in more specialists to the building. Does that work? Like if we, we stop doing is sending people out and we bring in more people into the facility, would that, would that solve this problem? Maybe. And it may create other problems. <laughs> <laughs> So I think there are pros and cons. I'm a huge proponent of having people visit patients where they live, because I think you can get a lot more information 
about their function and how their medical condition impacts their function and how that plays into decisions we make about disposition. Um, at the same time, the nursing home is a very special regulatory environment. And most physicians who don't practice in the post-acute and long-term care setting, they don't understand the regulatory pressures, sort of the regulatory um, structure that we have to function um, in. So I think if we do it, there's definitely benefit. There's benefit for the patient in terms of risk mitigation on a transfer, right? They don't have to go anywhere. That's a transfer that didn't happen, right? There's benefit for the provider because they have an opportunity to see that person in sort of their natural environment and have a richer assessment. But I think those of us who serve as medical directors would need to put in place some education and some uh, policy and procedure to help prepare specialists to come into the environment so that they are um, uh, not sort of falling into or creating pitfalls and additional problems that we didn't anticipate because we simply didn't prepare, prepare for it or prepare them for it. Well, yes, that's true. I think I once read a note where a specialist who had come in commented on the fact that the facility was it was allowing the resident to fall. So that was not a very good conversation with um, surveyors. I'm <laughs> trying to unpack that. Mm -hmm. um, what do we need to do for our, our nursing staff in the facility if we're saying, hey, we're going to invite more specialists in? Because mm -hmm. I would imagine, you know, they see a lot of, they probably see a lot of doctors because we know sometimes we have wound care in the building, podiatry coming in. But what do we need to do if we're asking for more pulmonologists and cardiologists and, and others who may not be as familiar with our environment? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because the nurses in long-term care um, are incredibly impactful, potentially good and bad, right? Depending upon how they manage that resident's care. I think our nurses need more support for the role of case management. We tend to be very task oriented in post-acute and long-term care. And we've even recognized that and we've made some shifts over the last 10 to 15 years. Now most facilities have medication aids. And medica why did we do that? We did that so that the nurses could focus more on the patient. And we can have a different conversation on a different day about whether or not that's been uh, beneficial or whether or not it has delivered to us what we hoped it would. But assuming that it does free the nurse up, then what we can do with that extra time that the nurse now has is that nurse can now be a case manager. That nurse can now be a repository of information. That nurse can now hold the, the care plan memory, if you will of what's going on with that patient because oftentimes they are the ones providing the most continuity. Specialists, yes, they come and go and perhaps they're on a rotation. This week it's Dr. Wong and next week it's Dr. Johnson, right? But that nurse has been caring for that patient for six months. So I think giving them more support for the role of case manager could really be beneficial 
um, for the patient and for the healthcare system because they can help with that communication piece that's often lacking when things start to unravel. Now, someone's probably listening to this and they're asking, they're saying, oh, okay, big idea, microtransitions, nurses, nurses um, being the source of continuity. I love that. And it, it is so true, but we're in the midst of a staffing crisis. Mm -hmm. So how do we handle now the, these microtransitions when we don't have enough people on the floor? We don't have enough CNAs in the building. We have um, directors of nurses, um, you know, giving up their role and going to other more lucrative positions. How, what do we need to do? How, how, how should we be approaching this? Yeah, that's the $64 million question. So I think for the people that we have in the building, we want to make sure that, that they are practicing at the top of their license and that they have ample support to be able to do that. We've got this mass exodus from the workforce in all, all sorts of settings, not just healthcare. Not and people are you right. Right. So people are leaving traditional jobs because they are they're going towards something else. So we have to figure out what that something else is and find out if there are ways that we can adjust their position so that they can have those things that they are seeking. Oftentimes it's flexibility for things like childcare or care of an elderly parent or better healthcare insurance. Many healthcare workers, many frontline healthcare workers are either uninsured or underinsured. And so we've got to look at the reasons for the staffing shortage so that we can maybe fix that piece of it. But I think for the present distress, we've got to work with what we, what we have. And for that, we need all hands on deck. It is not uncommon for me, if I'm in the room and a patient needs to be turned or transferred, I help. I make it a point not to walk by a light. If there's a call light on, I'm going to stop. Nine times out of 10, they need something I can't give them as the physician. But what can I do is I can get the person who can help them, right? And so we really have to, we say we're in it together. We say we're a team. But when the rubber meets the road and we're all stressed out, we start thinking about what's my job and what's your job. So I think one of the things that we can do to continue to build um, that teamwork mindset is to really lean in and help wherever help is needed so that people feel supported and they don't mind going the extra mile because they know you're going the extra mile right along with them. That's very true. Um, and I think we've learned a lot of that and seen that what would the difference when you have someone who's hands-on in the facility with our, with our, um, primary attendings and their clinical teams and the medical director are hands-on versus when we do not have that, <laughs> you know, we see the, a, a dramatic difference. Um, let's go back to your, your football analogy. And if I was, the, if I'm the quarterback, if I'm Mahomes, which yes, I'm a Kansas City Chief fan still in mourning, but if I'm Mahomes and I'm trying to create this team, you know, and my most valuable player is the, is the, the, the patient's son or daughter, mm -hmm. how do I, you know, who else, how do I get the nurses? How do I get that, that um, the physicians on the outside to understand that we're all part of this team? You know, what is the, what is that policy or that procedure? What does that look like? 
That's a great question. I think we already have the answer. I just don't know whether or not we are as efficient at operationalizing it. And that is the interdisciplinary care plan meeting. Now, I, as a medical director and attending physician in post-acute and long-term care, I love to go to care plan meetings. I can't tell you how many times I have people say, what, you want to come to this meeting? Why? <laughs> because it gives me an opportunity to hear from the therapy team, to hear from the nursing team, perhaps to hear from a person in activities or to have a conversation about ways that we can help to manage behaviors by adjusting the activity care plan, as opposed to me getting a call asking for some medication to help take the edge off, right? And so I think that if we leverage the power of the interdisciplinary team meetings and we make them such that providers can actually come, a lot of times those Meetings are happening prime time in the middle of rounds and nobody has time to go and sit for an hour or two. But if we can find a way to do them uh, so that family members can come, we, we're using a lot more telehealth and telemedicine. So mm -hmm. having people attend, not just by phone, but with video assisted platforms, because you get to see expression all of those nonverbal pieces of communication that you miss when you just have someone on speakerphone, you can get those, right? So I think finding ways to have more of the team invested and involved in the interdisciplinary care plan meeting is a great way to start quarterbacking well. <laughs> nice, nice. So I'm thinking, and I'm, and I'm thinking from everything that you're, you're, you've said, we have to be willing to pick up the baton. We have to be willing to lean in and help. We need to be empowering not only the resident, but the family members, because we may need them to be our most valuable player. And I keep thinking of the whole pregame, you know, getting those interdisciplinary teams functioning in the way, you know, participating, getting, being involved as the provider in those meetings, um, as the medical director in those meetings, in understanding how to then take that information that you know only we know of what's happening in those facilities and communicate that to the specialist, the imaging center, maybe the hospital that they're going to, you know, everything is is important. It, it feels like it's just what what you are supposed to do, but that is the procedure. That's what we need to be doing. Right, right. I still think of it as the pregame, you know, how am I pregaming this, this, this transition? Right. Absolutely. And it's one thing to have a plan on paper. It's another thing to actually implement that plan and operationalize it with efficiency and with excellence. And I think one of the challenges we have is challenges everywhere, turnover and burnout and, you know, all of those other things, but it's still a worthy goal. And it's still something that I think if we all work together and lean in, we can learn to do better. And at the end of the day, the patient will benefit, the healthcare system will benefit. And I think healthcare workers will get more satisfaction out of taking care of patients in these settings. And maybe we can sort of put a lid on some of this turnover. Well, Dr. Green, I thank you for this time. I thank you for everything you said. 
is there one thing that you want us to, if we remember nothing else, take away? I heard someone say once that the most underutilized resource in the healthcare system is the patient and caregiver. And we say the patient should be the center and the caregiver diet, they should be in the center. But I think if we always keep that in mind, how is this going to impact the patient and caregiver? And how can we um, sort of pull them in and encourage and empower them uh, to be stronger advocates, whether it's a macro transition or a micro transition. If we listen to the patient and the caregiver, we'll often have all we need in order to be able to do a good job managing that transition. Uh, but as long as we're relying on that stack of paper that came across in that envelope and that's all we're looking at, we're gonna miss a huge piece of the puzzle. So I think um, doing a better job of putting into practice this concept of patient and caregiver in the center of everything we do will really go a long way. Thank you for that. And thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon. All right, Victor, was that good? Yeah, that was good. That was thank good. One you, thing. Dr. Green. You're so awesome. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. This is my first one. So oh, this is good. A, You're good. <laughs> if I have an opportunity to do more, maybe I'll get better as time goes. But thank I you. I thought you were good. I thought, yeah, you just know that you were good. You were fun. It was good. Okay. You know, I didn't have to pull anything out. <laughs> Mm -hmm. That's always a good thing. <laughs> right, right. So what you've developed is a is a skill set, right? That you know nobody teaches us in medical school. So this is great. I'm glad you're having an opportunity to do this. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, Victor, what do you need from us? Do you? That's it. That's that's all I need. If you do, if you do want to provide a description, so when I post this, uh, I'll have a description okay. of what you guys talked about. You can send that to me. Uh, any references or anything you need to put in there as well you can include that and then once i edit this i'll send a copy for you to uh, approve and review before it gets posted perfect dr Gree, can you send me your um your definition and any <laughs> reference that you want us to include sure. um, i just want to make sure i i i um you know respect your definition and everything and anything from the um the transitions um um, of care subcommittee that you want us to include, we could do that and when it when it posts. So okay, we'll good. do. And we'll then I, um, I had some other references too. Um, Victor, I'll add on to that. Okay. okay. All, right. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. You will be invited back. So watch out. <laughs> All right, y'all have a wonderful weekend. All right. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Join AMDA and your colleagues in person at PALTC 22, AMDA's annual conference that's being held in Baltimore, Maryland, March 10th through 13th, 2022. Or, if you prefer a virtual option, you can attend digitally. There's a great program planned with lots of new content on COVID and other clinical and regulatory topics. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits, 
For certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.